0: Now hear God's holy word from 2 Kings chapter 2 as we conclude our study in the life and times of the prophet Elijah. Hear now God's holy word. And it came to pass when Yahweh was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here please for Yahweh has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you So they went down to Bethel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the high privilege that we can come into your presence today to be forgiven, to have our fellowship to you restored, to hear you speak to us through your word, that you would hear the psalms, and the praises, and the petitions, and supplications, that you would feed us at your table. Father, we are honored, and privileged, and delighted to be your sons and daughters, and now we pray that you would guide us into this time of study of your word. We pray that you would fill us with hope, and instruction, and admonition, and correction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Carl Lewis was inarguably the greatest American sprinter of all time, and he made a few headlines this past summer, he created quite a stir during the Olympics when he voiced sharp criticism for the United States men's relay teams, particularly the four by 100 relay team. The four by 100 is the race where uh, one runner comes out of the blocks and runs 100 meters and hands off a baton to the second runner who runs 100 meters, and so on. The U.S. team this year was plagued by a number of humiliating mistakes, specifically during the exchanges of the baton. And so Carl Lewis commented, he said the USA team did everything wrong in the men's relay. The passing of system is wrong, athletes running the wrong legs, and it was clear that there was no leadership. He said it was a total embarrassment and completely unacceptable for a USA team. And his frustration was understandable given that the United States has some of the fastest sprinters in the world, but who are also notoriously bad when they try to work together as a team. And this isn't just a recent issue, it's been this way for 30 years. It's not uncommon for a US relay team to miss handoffs, to drop batons, to fail to make the exchange within the designated zone. I'll leave the criticism to Carl Lewis, I'm not a sprinter, But it's notable that the difficulty for the USA relay teams, the difficulty is not in the running. They run fine. It's not getting out of the starting blocks. It's not making it to the finish line. The problems happen in the handoff. The problems happen in the transition. That's where the failures happen. Either the giver or the receiver drops the baton. And I think there's a great lesson there and a great warning as well, that smooth transitions, whether you're talking about running or you're talking about uh, passing things off to someone else to do, delegating responsibility, smooth transitions are difficult and critical. Transition times are crisis times. Whether we're talking about passing responsibility or authority or leadership from one person to another, it's complex and precarious. That doesn't mean that transitions must be dreaded, that that doesn't mean they're to be avoided, but these times do bring an increase in the potential of trouble and they are risky. So we must not assume that everything's just always going to work out when it's time to make a transition that nothing bad will ever happen, but rather during these times to be on alert, to be aware of the temptations and the dangers. There are several transition times in the Bible in the In the historical narrative of, of the scriptures, these are all crisis times from Moses to Joshua, from David to Solomon, even from Jesus to the apostles The, the, the questions abound: Will the new leader be as faithful as the previous leader? Will the new generation build on the blessings they've been given, or will they squander everything that they've been handed? Are they squandered their opportunities? Are they going to repeat the sins and the foolishness of previous generations, or are they going to introduce their own arrows on top of that? Will they possibly be more diligent than those who came before them? How we make it through depends, in part, how do we manage the handoff? How do we manage the transition? How do we pass the batons? Our text today brings us to another big transition in biblical history. We've been studying studying the life and the times of the prophet Elijah, picking up lessons on how do you live in a time of widespread cultural idolatry. We are now at the end of Elijah's life, and we find that Elijah has an appointment with Yahweh to be taken up into God's glory cloud. This presents a crisis. If Elijah is leaving the scene, who is going to pick up Elijah's work? Who is going to occupy his office? How are we going to manage this transfer? Compounding the issues is the fact that this is not the only crisis going on in Israel at this time. After the death of Ahab, at the end of 1 Kings, which we read about last week, we open 2 Kings with another tragedy. There's a brief and tragic story of Ahab's son, Ahaziah a boy raised in a Baal worshiping house. His mother is Jezebel. He doesn't have a great start on life. His father's a knucklehead, Ahab. And Ahaziah, after the death of his father Ahab, Ahaziah becomes king. And who, not surprisingly, calls on Baal in a time of desperation, in a time of need. Ahaziah had fallen out of a window. We don't read what was he doing to cause him to fall out of a window. It's, Typically not smart activity that gets you falling out of a window, but we don't know. We'll leave judgment to, uh, uh, we'll we'll reserve judgment. But he falls out of a window and he is severely injured. And so lying in bed, he calls on Baal to heal him instead of calling for Elijah. Now remember, Elijah is the man who by the power of the Holy Spirit raised a boy from the dead. You might check in with him if you're in trouble. You might give him a call. I mean, just to check, see if he's available but he doesn't check in with Elijah, and Elijah asks him, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? We have a God, we have a king, we have a Lord who will heal you if you call out to him, a God who will minister to you, who might work some miraculous deliverance. But Ahaziah is a chip off the old block, and so after he calls on Baal, and he's rebuked by Elijah, He doesn't repent. He didn't learn repentance from his father. And instead of hearing the prophet's word, he attacks the messenger. Well, that sounds like exactly what Ahab would do. So Ahaziah sends an army, he sends a company of 50 men to go capture Elijah. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes those 50 men. So being a very brilliant strategist, Ahaziah sends another 50 men and fire once again comes down and consumes that company. Well, the third time, you know what he does? He sends 50 men. I mean, when he he gets a plan in his head, he doesn't change his mind. He's gonna keep sending 50 men. The difference on the third time is that the captain of the army, when he gets close to Elijah, he repents, and he falls down, and he pleads with Elijah, please don't kill me, and they are spared. But Elijah sends the captain of the army back to Ahaziah with this message, The message is this, you are never gonna get out of bed. You're gonna surely, you surely will die. You will die there. So Ahaziah died. Ahaziah didn't have a son. He didn't have long enough to build his own house. And Ahaziah's younger brother becomes king. So there's this dark cloud hanging over the family of Ahab. the, The house of Ahab is unraveling. And according to the prophecy of Elijah, the house of Ahab is coming to nothing. It's going to be destroyed, and we're watching that. But that means there's more tumult, there's more change, and there's more transition. And in the middle of this political crisis, Yahweh says this is the time to take Elijah out of the picture. Now, From a human perspective, we would say this could not come at a worse time. This is terrible timing. Without a king, with the throne in transition, Who is going to lead Israel? We need our prophet. This is crisis time. How are we gonna do without him? Who is going to lead Israel? And we hear, as we're gonna read this text in just a few minutes, we're gonna hear Elisha's questions and concerns about how this is gonna go. Back at Mount Horeb, God had told Elijah to anoint Elisha to take his place. But as we get into this text, the question of who is going to succeed, um, uh, Elijah still lingers. The question of succession still lingers. Elijah can't answer all of Elisha's questions. And then we find out that uh, these two, Elijah and Elisha, these are not the only prophets in Israel at this time. Again, back at Mount Horeb, Elijah said, he complained, I'm the only active prophet remaining in Israel. But if you've noticed over the last several chapters of our study, you can't go anywhere without running into a prophet. There are prophets coming to Ahab that don't even have names. We don't have their names recorded. Micaiah last week is a faithful prophet who comes to Ahab. And as we work through this text, we're going to see that there are schools of prophets set up around all the major population centers. Even the rebellious cities of Jericho and Bethel have schools of prophets. So the prophets are emboldened They're building institutions right near the heart of idolatry, right near the idolatrous cities. So perhaps what God intended was that Elisha would be Elijah's helper for a time until the the prophets were built up again, until we had schools of prophets, and then the Lord might raise up one of these others to take Elijah's place. They don't know how this is gonna go. Who is gonna take over after Elijah is still a question that's hanging in the air. So I wanna read this narrative all at once to set the whole, the whole scene before us, and then we, consider, we can consider specific components of it. So reading from 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse one. And it came to pass, when Yahweh was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for Yahweh has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that Yahweh will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for Yahweh has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that Yahweh will take your master from over you today? So he answered, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here please, for Yahweh has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Elisha said, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, where is Yahweh, God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master. Lest perhaps the spirit of Yahweh has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them. Therefore they sent 50 men and they searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back to him, for he stayed in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Well, There's a lot there, and we'll try to pull out the most significant um, components or things that, that we can uh, work to understand here. The fire that consumed the sacrifice of the top of Mount Carmel, the fire that consumed those company of soldiers that Ahaziah sent out is now a fire that consumes Elijah. Elijah, however, is an acceptable sacrifice, to God, this whirlwind that takes Elijah up can be nothing other than God's glory cloud, which we've seen seen in many places in scripture. The glory cloud rested over Mount Sinai when God was giving Moses the law that that cloud full of lightning and thunder then takes up residence over the tabernacle. It fills the tabernacle, and then it leads God's people through the wilderness by night and by day. Whenever the cloud stops, the people stop, and they put the tabernacle up. And when it moves on, they take the tabernacle down, and they and they follow it. That cloud is a source of judgment and blessing to God's people in the wilderness wilderness. At one point, the cloud fills 70 men and they prophesy. At another point, Miriam criticizes her brother's wife and she struck with leprosy out of the cloud. So this glory cloud is like a sliver of of heaven's dimension that pokes into earth. It's an earthly representation of heaven's authority and power and God's presence and his judgment and his blessing and his guidance as he guides his people through the wilderness. And whenever we see that cloud, it's full of lightning, it's full of fire, it's full of sound, the sound of a rushing mighty wind, great noise um, is, is, is the description of this cloud. If you've ever read uh, the book of Ezekiel, you get to Ezekiel chapter one, you see the first thing that Ezekiel describes is this whirlwind. Ezekiel stands at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity and God's presence is taking up from Jerusalem and moving over into Babylon for his presence to rest with his people in captivity. Yahweh is accepting the exile. Yahweh is joining his people in captivity. And Ezekiel sees God's glory cloud as this great whirlwind. Ezekiel even sees a chariot, there are wheels there. You see into the, into the whirlwind, and not only is there fire and wheels, but it has cherubim in it. There are, the, the cherubim are in this cloud. So it seems to me that this glory cloud that shows up all over scripture is, is a great swarm, a great army of angels. The glory cloud is God's heavenly angelic force. The glory cloud is his chariot that he rides into battle. And I'm not making any of this up. Psalm 68 says that when Yahweh judges his enemies, he rides on the clouds. Psalm 104 says the clouds are his chariot. So when we read in the New Testament that Jesus is coming in the clouds or Jesus is coming with the clouds, we're not talking about Jesus walking on fluffy, white, cumulus you know, water vapor. That's not what we're talking about. It's a reference to his angelic army, his clouds of angels, his, his chariot, his glory cloud, as he comes in judgment against the rebellious city. Jesus comes against the wicked city with the clouds. Who are they? With his angels. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. So let's start reading the book of Revelation. We'll just start there with, no, I'm sorry. Uh, we've already done that. And now this glory cloud dips down and it scoops up the prophet Elijah. But before that takes place, Elijah, there are a few places that he must visit and a few things that he must do, a few actions he must take. Elisha wants to be there whenever this happens. Elisha does not wanna be separated from Elijah. So before Elijah is caught up in a cloud, he takes a brief tour around some significant places in the kingdom of Israel. He begins in Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is a significant town because many generations before, it was the first place that Israel camped with Joshua after entering the land of promise. They cross over the Jordan River on dry dry ground and they camp at Gilgal. And it's at Gilgal that they renew the covenant with God. For these past 40 years, there were no circumcisions. They weren't practicing the sacrament of the old covenant. They weren't bringing their sons into the covenant, and so they uh, renew covenant there. The manna ceases at Gilgal, and so now they're gonna live off the land. They're here in the land. The tabernacle was set up and it stayed at Gilgal for a long time, for many years. They start at Gilgal, Elijah and Elisha start there, and Elijah tells Elisha, I'm going on to Bethel, you stay here, please stay here. And Elisha declares, I will not leave you. And Elisha goes on with Elijah. They then go to Bethel. Bethel is another very important site. Abraham built an altar at Bethel, he set up a sanctuary, a center of Yahweh worship at Bethel. When God made his covenant with Abraham, he establishes worship there at Bethel. Later on, the tabernacle was set up at Bethel for many years. Then when the kingdom is split, the northern king, Jeroboam, sets up Bethel as one of his sites for calf worship. He sets an idol up at Bethel, and then it becomes a center of idolatry. But now in 2 Kings 2, there is a school of the prophets there. When we read about the sons of the prophets, there's there's a seminary there. There's an orthodox seminary right in the center of this city known for its idolatry. And the students are all gathered there. When Elisha and Elijah get to town, Elisha is asked, he's peppered with these questions, don't you know? that the Lord is gonna take your master from over you today. He's gonna take him away from you. And Elisha says, I know, I know, but keep silent. I don't don't wanna talk about this, Just, just keep it quiet. Now, what that indicates is that there's public knowledge in the prophetic community, at least, that God is going to take Elijah away. Elijah then says to Elisha, okay, I'm going on to Jericho. Elisha, you stay here. There's a school here, there's work to be done, Jericho, I'm sorry, Bethel. Bethel's a good place. I've got to go on to Jericho. Elisha says once again, I will not leave you. I'm not going to be separated from you. Next, they go on to Jericho. It's a famous city, of course. It's the first city that Joshua and and Israel conquered uh, in the days of the conquest. For centuries, the city of Jericho had lain in ruins. It was under a curse. God said, anybody who tries to rebuild this city, you're going to lose your firstborn and you're going to lose your youngest. And so the city stayed in ruins until the days of Ahab. And the days of Ahab, we don't care what God says. We don't care about God's judgment. And so under Ahab, it is rebuilt and the man who builds it, Hiel of Bethel, loses his sons, just like God said he would. Now, now that it's built though, now the city of Jericho is built, what are you gonna do? Are you just gonna stay away from it and let the idolaters have it? Should you be real superstitious about Jericho and and not go visit that city? Well, the punishment has been meted out. Hiel of Bethel has lost his sons, just as God said. But now, it's just another city. It's another city full of people that need to be taught the truth. We learn that there's another school of prophets in Jericho. Many centuries later, Jesus himself is gonna go to Jericho. That's where he meets uh, Zacchaeus. That's where he meets Jesus, heals Bartimaeus. He heals other blind men at Jericho. So it's not a cursed city forever. It's just another city. And now a third time Elijah says to Elisha, please stay here, the Lord is sending me on to the Jordan River. And Elisha the third time says, I will not leave you. At no point does Elijah say to Elisha, you must stay here. Thus saith the Lord, don't follow me, stay here. And every time Elijah says please, Elisha says no thank you, he just says please. At any point, Elisha may have been content to stay in one of these towns, but then he wouldn't have been there when Elijah is taken up into the glory cloud and and he would not have been there to take up Elijah's mantle. That might have gone to somebody else or maybe there wouldn't be someone to take Elijah's place if Elisha had stayed in any one of these places. But three times Elisha says, I will not leave you, and then Elijah is taken up to heaven, and there's a transfer of leadership. Does that sound familiar to anything else you've read in the scriptures? Does that sound familiar to anything else? It sounds like John 21, doesn't it? Where the Lord Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? He confirms Peter's love for him, and then Jesus ascends to the Father, and he transfers leadership to the apostles, Elisha's loyalty is publicly confirmed three times in three towns so that everyone can see this is the man, Elisha's the man who will pick things up after Elijah is gone. It's good to have this endorsement from Elijah because Elisha didn't come through the same schools, he didn't come up through the same ranks that uh, the other men might have, he's an outsider. Remember, Elisha was a farmer He was plowing the first time that we see him. Uh, Remember how Paul wasn't one of the 12. The apostle Paul didn't come through the same ranks, and so Barnabas has to go get him and put his arm around him and bring him to the apostles to be confirmed. But we need a solid handoff. We need a solid transfer so that there's no question about Elijah's qualifications or his ordination. Now notice these three places that Elijah visits, Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho where every place there's faithful people, there's Orthodox ministry taking place, there are centers of Yahweh worship among the idolaters. When Abraham entered the land, remember he built three primary centers of worship, Shechem, Bethel, and Hebron. The Canaanites, of course, undo Abraham's work and Isaac has to go back through and he has to redig the wells and he has to re-establish these centers of worship. When Joshua comes into the land and conquers the land, these three places, have significance. There are significant conquests and battles at Shechem and Bethel and Hebron, And the idea seems to be in each generation that if we can conquer, if we can hold, if we can establish rule at three significant places, then the land is at least symbolically under the worship of Yahweh. There's more work to do, but at least we've got a toehold. hold. We've got a beachhead. Now, Elijah doesn't go around to these three places that were important to Abraham. The only one on both lists is Bethel. But they are three places that are significant to Joshua. These are three towns, Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho, that are significant to the conquest of the land. These are also three important political centers. They're three strongholds, three communities, it seems is enough to establish initial presence in the land. And again, there's more work to do, but notice how different things are from when we first started studying the life of Elijah. Uh, The the political landscape is still a mess, but the church is much stronger now. The church has been strengthened through the work of Elijah. The people of God are much more uh, confident. The faithful are emboldened now. Elijah heads to the River Jordan and he rolls up his garments and he strikes the water you may have in your mind, you know how you do that thing with the pool towel and you roll it up and you pop it? You know you know what I'm talking about, right? You, ever, and you usually pop your friend's you know, backside or you know your brother or whatever. You roll it up. And I have in my mind that that's probably, when you think of Elijah, rolled up his garments and struck the water. That's probably what he did. I, I, I'm just guessing. That's in my head canon of what's going on here. But there's another image I want to include with that. I want to put something else on top of that. Sometimes in the... In the scriptures, I'll say sometimes, even often, the old creation is compared to a garment, like in Psalm 102 or in Hebrews one. The old creation is called a garment that wears out and is folded up or is rolled up. So as Elijah goes out of the land, crossing the dry river Jordan, as he leaves the land, he makes this prophetic symbol of rolling up his garment as an old world is coming to a close, as a new world is coming in, the old world is being rolled up like a garment, as it's being wrapped up. And as the new prophet reenters the land, when is gonna come into the land, there's gonna be a new order, a new creation. The house of Ahab is going down. The world that was is ending. That chapter of Israel's history is over and we're about to enter a new historical period and Elisha is gonna be God's servant to usher in that new world and that new reality and all the new possibilities with what's coming soon. When the two prophets go across the river to the east side of the river, they cross Jordan on dry land, Elijah asks of Elisha, he says, ask me, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? And what does Elisha say? He says, give me a double portion of your spirit. Now what's Elisha asking for? He's not asking you know, for a double dose of the Holy Ghost so he can have more than anybody else. He is asking something very specific. The double portion is a specific reference to the inheritance of the firstborn. In Israel, your firstborn son receives a double portion of your estate. And so if you have 12 sons, You want to divide your estate into 13 portions and the oldest son gets two of those. He gets double what everybody else gets. Elisha, by asking for a double portion of his spirit, Elisha wants to confirm that he is the firstborn. He is the firstborn son. There are several sons of the prophets. Everywhere we go, there are sons of the prophets. Elisha calls Elijah my father. He wants to know that he is the oldest son. Uh, He wants to be the one who takes up the legacy and the office of Elijah. And so that's what Elisha asked for. But Elijah says, that's not up to me. In verse 10, he says, you've asked me a hard thing. I don't know if I can answer that. That's not up to me. If the Lord lets you see what's about to happen, then it will be so. But if you don't see what's about to happen, then it's not so. God doesn't let everybody look into his whirlwind, into his glory cloud, only those that he has chosen. like Isaiah gets to look into it, Ezekiel gets to look into God's glory cloud, um, and others. So as it, as it happened, as they talked, suddenly a chariot of fire appears. Elijah goes up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. It says, Elisha saw it. Okay, now that he's seen the chariot, it proves that Elisha is the one who is going to carry the mantle. And Elisha cries out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. God has his heavenly cavalry. God has his heavenly army. In just a few chapters, Elisha's gonna see that. Remember that scene where Elisha sees God's army arrayed on the the battlefield? But that heavenly army is mirrored on earth by God's people. His servants, the prophets, God's prophets are his horsemen. The same thing is gonna be said by the king Joash when Elisha dies, the king when Elisha dies is going to say uh, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. The prophets of God are the horsemen, they're the chariots uh, of, of Yahweh. You know that the king of Israel was forbidden from multiplying horses, why? Why couldn't he depend on his own horses for war? Well because Yahweh has a better cavalry. Yahweh has an angelic cavalry and he's also provided the prophets as his horsemen So if you listen to the prophets and obey his word, Yahweh will protect your land and your land will be saved and the nation will be restored and you'll be delivered from your enemies by his angelic cavalry. If you rely on your own horses, then your nation will die. So Elisha tears his clothes into two pieces. He gets rid of his old clothes, he removes his old life just as he sacrificed his plow and his oxen the first time he meets Elijah and he takes up the mantle of elijah he strikes the water just as elijah does he walks back through across the jordan river on dry land just like joshua and the people of israel coming through into the land for the first time we enter through the water and the prophets see him and agree that elisha is the chosen leader and that they're going to follow him they even say the spirit of elisha um, i'm sorry the spirit of elijah rests on elisha something very similar was said when Moses passes his mantle of leadership onto Joshua. It is said that the spirit of wisdom of Moses rested on Joshua back in Deuteronomy chapter 34. So the spirit passes from one to the other. There are other connections here between Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha. Moses led Israel out of idolatrous Egypt. Joshua goes into the land to conquer it. Elijah led Israel out of Baal worship. Elijah led Israel out of idolatry, out of the slavery to Baal. Elisha is going to go back into the land as a conqueror. Elisha's a new Joshua. And just as Moses' body can't be found, Elijah's body is not gonna be found. All the prophet boys, when Elisha gets back, all the prophet boys say, we gotta go find him. We gotta go find Elijah. Maybe Yahweh just kinda picked him up and dumped him on top of a mountain. Or maybe God picked him up and threw him into a valley. And he may be out there hungry and, you know, lost. We got to go locate him. We got to find him. But Elisha says, you're not going to find him. Leave me alone. Don't send anybody. But they keep on asking. They keep on asking until Elisha says, okay, go, go, go. Send somebody. Go look for him. And then after their fruitless search, they come back without finding him. And Elisha says, I told you, didn't I? I told you you weren't going to find him. Once again, Elisha's insight and his knowledge and his authority is confirmed there. He said, you're not gonna find him, and he was correct. Over and over and over, it's confirmed. Elisha is the successor to Elijah. The transfer is complete. Elisha has taken up the mantle. So despite the anxiety and the tension that comes through this text, there are students who are asking, don't you know that God's gonna take your leader away from you? Don't you know your master's gonna go away? And Elisha says, keep quiet, keep quiet, I don't wanna talk about this. And then the students who search for the body of Elijah and the questions of Elisha, will you give me a double portion? Am I I gonna be the one who succeeds you here? Is it gonna be somebody else? His insistence on not letting Elijah out of his sight. When the time comes to pass the baton, All these questions and all these concerns are resolved, and there's no doubt about who the man is. Who is the point man? It's Elisha. The transition is smooth due to the way that it's conducted. There are repeated public affirmations. We have this tour of significant places, the crossing of the river on dry land, The salt brings us back to the conquest of Canaan. And it's a clear message to Elisha and to everybody else. This is what Elisha's role is going to be. What is his mission? As he crosses back over the Jordan, he is the new captain of God's army. He is the new Joshua. And what's stretched out before him is an idolatrous land. And he is not gonna conquer this by himself. He has armies of faithful prophets, holy chariots and horsemen, He even catches a glimpse of God's angelic chariot and his angelic horsemen that will wage war from the heavenlies. All these prophetic actions are instructive to Elisha of who he is and what is his place in the story. When um, a runner in a relay race, when a runner is waiting to receive the baton, he's not standing there waiting for the handoff and then starts running. Right? He has to begin running before he even has the baton so that we don't slow down, so that we stay at a constant speed. We keep our speed up. And so the second runner must, must get up to speed in that transition zone, get up to full speed to match the speed of the first runner. Then the baton is passed. Then he can take off while the first runner slows down and stops. One increases as the other decreases. What we see here, this is Elisha's acceleration lane. So he can accept the mantle at full speed and continue an unbroken, uninterrupted work of prophetic ministry. Now, let's try to apply these ideas to our work of raising up our children of making disciples, of training church officers and ministers, of of transferring any authority or transferring any work, delegating any work to anybody and doing it in such a way that the handoffs are clean so that the transitions are seamless. What can we learn here? Just a few quick lessons. The first thing might be obvious or it might be so simple that we overlook it is that it is necessary to pass the baton. I must be prepared to hand off my work to someone else. The work that God has given me must at some point go to somebody else because God's plans for the world are bigger than the span of my lifetime. I only get to participate in my leg of the race. So the first runner must not pridefully or arrogantly think he's gonna run the whole race by himself. The whole team would be disqualified. So, we learn to accept this and even delight in the fact that God at some point will hand our work off to others and that I am replaceable and you are replaceable. That's maybe hard to accept, but once we realize that, we kind of find rest in that. We kind of get a, uh, get a sense of peace about that. No matter how great you are, God has a replacement for you. Moses was replaced. David was replaced. Elijah here was replaced. Even Jesus himself, as he told his apostles in John 14, Jesus told his apostles, he said, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Jesus was ascending to the right hand of the father. He's gonna rule from there over the cosmos, and he gives his people the authority to now lead the church on earth. And he says, you're gonna do great. You're gonna go farther than I went. Jesus' ministry was in a tiny place. You're gonna go all over the world. You're gonna do greater things. Jesus handed off authority and leadership to the church when it was time to do so. So we pray that the Lord would give us wisdom. Maybe not today, maybe not this year, maybe not in the next few years, but that the Lord would give us wisdom to know when that time is and that when it comes time that we let go, not a moment before, but not a moment too late, that we give off this responsibility and authority to pass it on at the right time. And between now and then, we get our children, disciples, successors, employees, we get them up and running so that the handoff is flawless. Elijah's work with Elisha here was all focused on Israel's history, his identity, his place in the narrative. You get this hint that they're talking as they're going to these various places. And you can imagine Elijah unfolding the entire history of Israel as they go to Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho and Jordan. They, they, they make this history tour and, and Elijah is locating Elisha in Israel's story. What is your place? What is your identity? Where do you fit? And so Elisha, when he comes back in the land, he knows I'm the Joshua of this generation. Now. Elisha doesn't go from there and repeat Joshua's story beat for beat. He doesn't even repeat Elijah's story beat for beat. There are all kinds of new things that happen with Elisha, and yet he's grounded in this firm footing of who he is, who his people are, where he comes from, and where he's going. Part of our training of our kids, particularly, is getting them up to speed quickly, getting them through all the mistakes and the errors of thinking that we went through, so that they can go on and make their own mistakes and learn from them, but at least they're not repeating ours. And we give them this leg up and this head start so that they can go on to greater things. Just as Jesus told the apostles, you're gonna do greater things than these. And we want that for our children. We want them to have a greater sense of God and his word and his world than we had. We're not intimidated when our children know things that we didn't know or get to do things we didn't get to do. We delight in that, we're happy. That means we did our job, and that means that they've got a great great future for their children, and their children will do even greater things than this. This is one of the glories of thinking multi-generationally. It's one of the glories of thinking covenantally. We expect our kids to build on our foundation and even improve upon it. The problem with conversionism, the problem with expecting each generation to find Jesus all on their own and to, and to uh, start at zero and, and grow from there, the problem with that is that every generation is a first generation. Each generation is new converts, if you can even keep them, if you can even, if you can even get them in the faith. But when we're thinking covenantally, we acknowledge that our children are being born into a much more glorious situation than we were born into, and and that our grandchildren are gonna be even better off, and, and the Lord is moving us from glory to glory, from generation to generation. And then... Not to belabor this illustration anymore. I mean Paul talks about races about four different times. So I think I think I'm okay talking about running here. But not to belabor this illustration anymore, you see how important it is to make the transition and don't drop the baton. Run the leg of your race well. Paul talks about the Christian life as a race, and he says, run in such a way that you may receive your reward, that you may obtain the prize. Elijah came to a point in his life, we read a few weeks ago, where he felt like quitting, dying. Just take me, Lord. He wanted to tap out and give up, and the Spirit encouraged him and kept him going. It's not time yet, Elijah. I have more work for you to do. But if you or I drop the baton by checking out or giving up or by some failure, some gross sin... We hurt not only ourselves but the other people around us. If you drop the baton, the whole team is disqualified. Everybody suffers. The people who come after you have to deal with your failures. Children suffer from the sins of their parents. Congregations are hurt when pastors and church officers fail. Over these last several chapters, we've seen the disasters and the mayhem when an unfaithful king won't repent. We see what happens in the kingdom. It's terrible. The great lie of the independent individualist is that what I do doesn't affect anybody but me. I'm only hurting myself, so leave me alone. So then, out of that flows all these, quote, victimless crimes and victimless sins because what I do is my business and it doesn't affect anybody but myself. But you see, no one is an island to themselves. I am connected to you. I am in covenant with you. You are in covenant with me. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. It goes both ways. We color and shape our children in ways that we don't even realize. And what they do affects us. Our lives are knit together. Our lives are intertwined. And if I sin and fail and refuse to repent or restore or make restitution, that hurts you in significant ways. So maybe you're good at justifying your sin or you've got a habit of justifying your foolishness because you think, I'm only hurting myself. I'm not hurting anybody else. You need to know that's a lie because your wasted time and your opportunity and your misuse of God's good gifts toward you are not only hurting you, they're hurting the people around you and the people who come after you. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Don't drop or fumble the baton, finish your race, rejoice and trust and obey. As we live now in a time where we are in this transition between worlds, just like Elijah and Elisha, it feels like one world is dying and another world is being born. What do we do in between? Hold fast, hold steady, be faithful, trust and obey. And God will bring us through just as he brought these people, his people through these transitions. He always does this. He is always faithful. Don't drop the baton be faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would uh, continue to, by your spirit, work these things into our hearts and minds and cause us to meditate on them and to gain insight and uh, application from them. I pray uh, guide us through the rest of this service in Jesus' name. Amen.